um, to give honor to God's holy word because it is not the word of men, but it is God's holy and infallible word. Let's stand if we're able as we read together Micah 5, and uh, I have changed it up. We'll only be reading the beginning of uh, verse 5, so 1 through the beginning of verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, Micah 5, verse 1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Let's pray together. We thank you for this glorious passage of Scripture, wherein you have foretold the coming of your Messiah, even Jesus our Lord. Help us, we pray, to exalt him and to lift him up, and have that peace which can only come from his perfect and holy work. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. When I was not sure about my Christian faith, I struggled. I I, I didn't understand, well, how... Could what I, how could all the things that I was taught in school, in science class, regarding evolution and all these things, fit with Holy Scripture? I was at times doubting the Word of God. But one of the things that brought me to a steadfast assurance that this is truly God's Word is all of the magnificent and mighty ways that God's prophecies came to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That if you had to number all of the prophecies prophecies of of the Old Testament that were fulfilled perfectly in Christ, I mean, it it would be tremendous. I've heard one person say that um, it's in the hundreds. And I I, one time actually... (laughs) In my first days as a beginning Christian, I actually even made a spreadsheet and tried to, to show all of the Old Testament prophecies and all of the New Testament fulfillment, and it was a, a wonderful thing. This passage foretells of Jesus Christ long before he came into the world, and we'll see some of the most beautiful things, that we'll, uh, how Jesus, uh, the Messiah, is foretold here in this particular passage. Um, Micah, as a book of prophecy is one that begins with a great deal of judgment. It's not just uh, the whole, I mean, it's not just one of the two kingdoms. It's both the northern and southern kingdom. God promises to judge Samaria, which represents the northern kingdom. And then he also promises to judge Jerusalem, which represents the southern kingdom. 
um, he, to judge Jerusalem, which represents the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, what were the sins? They had the sins of idolatry, um, which in some parts of this book are called spiritual adultery. Um, they had covetousness leading to those who were robbing other people's property. Uh, rulers hated good and loved evil, so they were supposed to hate evil and exercise their rules to preserve the good, but instead they were, had flipped it. They hated good and loved evil, and they devoured their people. They, they cut up the people and, as if they put them in a pot to, <laughs> to devour them. They sought to build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent um, injustice. They had false prophets who led the people astray. They didn't care what God had to say. They had their own prophecy to give. And God foretold, if you look at uh, the prior chapter, in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he tells them that part of their judgment would be like the grief and trial of childbirth, the agony of childbirth. And I believe that speaks to the terrible trial of being besieged. And then it says later on that they would go to Babylon. Verse 10 even tells them where they're going to go into captivity, to Babylon. But this is not the end for Israel because God promises that he would retrieve them that he would deliver them, that he would rescue them from Babylon. Uh, it says that there in verse 10 at the end, that he would redeem them from the hand of their enemies. And as we get to uh, verse 1 of today's text, he's telling them to muster themselves in troops, you daughter of troops, for they have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. Here is God's rod of discipline for the people of Israel. Why? Because they have sinned wickedly and disobeyed God. And this is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28, wherein God promised judgment for disobedience. But in the midst of this judgment, we have the hope of the Holy Messiah, this long-awaited Messiah that was promised all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden shortly after our first parents fell. Let's, uh, we'll look at today's text under the main heading that we are to embrace God's salvation through the eternal ruler of Israel. We are to embrace God's salvation through the eternal ruler of Israel. And we'll see this in two main points. The Messiah's birth, and secondly, the Messiah's reign. Let's look at what it says here about the Messiah's birth. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This is a somewhat insignificant place. It wasn't big. It was a tiny little place, Bethlehem. It might have seemed insignificant in the eyes of the Jews, in light of covenant redemption and history. But in God's sight, it wasn't too little. It was grand. It was great. Bethlehem was precious in God's sight. It says in verse 2, From you, Bethlehem, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. 
this is, it doesn't say Messiah, but we know this is speaking of the Messiah here. Uh, the Messiah, or the ruler of Israel, would be eternal. Um, it says that his going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. When we look at the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ says in that great high priestly prayer some magnificent things about his relationship with the Father before he took on flesh. And one of the things he says that it's spectacular is in John 17, 5. When Jesus is praying to the Father in that great high priestly prayer, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. How could you make sense of that unless Jesus Christ existed with the Father from before time began, from all eternity? It's a perfect match of what Micah says here, that his going forths were from the days of eternity, and Jesus says that he had shared that glory with the Father before the world was. The promised Messiah, or the ruler here, is born as a fulfillment of the promises that God made in what some call the, uh, the proto-gospel, or the, the beginning of the gospel, or the, the first telling of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. God said, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This Messiah, this promised Messiah that's revealed here, that was going to be coming from the days of eternity, is the seed of the woman. It's mentioned here that that he would be born of the woman. It says here in verse 3, that she who is in labor has born a child speaking of a woman who is also the same one that's mentioned in in, um, Isaiah 7 as being uh, the virgin who shall bear a child, whose name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. Why was it necessary for the God-man to come in the flesh? It's because we had to have a second Adam. Where the first Adam failed... He brought us into a a state of sin and misery. The second Adam, our new representative, our new covenant head, Jesus Christ, perfectly obeyed God in all ways that the first Adam failed, and he perfectly paid for our failure to keep the law of God. But he had to be man to bear our iniquity as that second Adam. But he also had to be God, both man and God, and he had to be God to endure the eternal wrath of the Father due for a multitude which no one could number. If not, he couldn't accomplish such a salvation. But we have a glorious Messiah born in Bethlehem, born from from of old, from eternity, as the second Adam, the promised seed promised to our first parents. 
Let's look next at the Messiah's reign. Verse 4. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Key here is that the Messiah would come as a shepherd. This should remind us of the imagery in Psalm 23. I want us to think about and look at Psalm 23 in light of this prophecy. Let's go back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside Quiet waters, he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Before we go on, I want us to notice this. The reason we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death is because Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, walked it for us. He bore the wrath of the Father. He bore that great grief and torment for us. And it's only through the work of Jesus Christ that we can say that we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because Jesus Christ has endured the wrath of the Father for us. And we can go on and see how he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We can have assurance that we can dwell in the house of the Lord because of the person and work of the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, we have no hope, and this psalm cannot give us ultimate comfort except through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But getting back uh, again to to Micah, we're not going to look there, but uh, another passage that we talked about this morning is Ezekiel 34. Jesus coming as the Good Shepherd is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. Whereas the Jewish leadership failed to shepherd the people, failed to pursue after the lost, failed to bind up those who were injured and sick, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, came as the Good Shepherd. God said, I will come and shepherd them. This is proof that the Good Shepherd would be infinite and eternal and God himself as that Good Shepherd. It says here that the Messiah's reign would bear the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Here's where we want to look at John 5. John 5.
We'll start at, the, at verse 17. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and, say, and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the, father, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. That's speaking of giving eternal life through um, regeneration and salvation through his blood. Verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Uh, we'll we'll stop there for right now. Notice a few things in this ta- in this text. God gave power and authority to the Son. He gave power and authority to the Son, and the reason the Son is able to exercise authority is because the Father has given him that power. Let's read on. Jesus says in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own authority or my own initiative. All right, so here... Jesus is saying that even the dead will listen to the voice of the Son of God. That is the ultimate power and authority. Um, you think they had a problem with with Jesus saying, "I am the Son of I, I'm the Son of God," but Jesus saying, "The dead will hear my voice, and when I when I speak, they will rise." But also, not only that, but I'm going to be the one who's going to execute judgment. This is clearly a, pay, a place in Scripture where Scripture teaches that the Son has the strength of the Lord, 
and serves in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Getting back to Micah, we'll turn back to Micah there. Uh, Micah 5, 4 says, He will be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus Christ will be great to the ends of the earth. Well, what happened? Jesus started with 12 apostles. Now we have a Christian faith that has covered most of the world. Not all of it, but most of it. I'm not saying that the gospel is spread forth to the point where there's no need for further Christian missions. There's still a desperate need for, for Christian missions. The job of Christian missions is not done till all of the elect are gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation from all over the world. And then the goal of that is then to provoke uh, Israel to jealousy, wherein then blindness will fall from the old covenant people and they will see Jesus as as the Messiah. And from that point on, according to Romans 11, we can expect a restoration of the Jewish people who have long forsaken the Messiah. Verse 5 says of this Messiah, This one will be our peace. Jesus the Messiah will be our peace. It fits well with the title given by Isaiah, uh, given to God, by God to Isaiah in Isaiah 9 6, that the Messiah to come would be called the Prince of Peace. Jesus came into the world to give us peace in a way that the world cannot give us peace. How does the world give us peace? Well, we might have peace from finances. We might have peace of mind, some would say. But the world's peace wavers and falters. The world's peace is a shaken foundation and it's not stable. It's built upon sand. But the peace that is through Jesus Christ the ruler from of old, the Messiah promised here, is the only peace, the only steadfast, concrete foundation by which you can build. And the peace that we can have through Jesus Christ is a foundation built upon the prophets and apostles with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. If you build your life upon the rock of Holy Scripture, not only building it upon believing it, but practicing it, you will have a steadfast foundation to stand the wind, the rain, the flood waters of life. And it's only through the foundation of God's holy word and through his spirit that we can stand and not be washed away on sinking sand. But most importantly, the reason we see that Jesus Christ is our peace is because Jesus Christ came to give us peace with the Father, to reconcile us unto God. And the reason we need to be reconciled is because in our natural state, we are at enmity or a state of war with God. Our sins have separated us. God cannot have us dwell in His presence because of sin. So that's the dilemma. What are we going to do and how can we be reconciled to a holy, infinitely holy and just God when we are wicked sinners? 
And the answer is through Jesus Christ. This one, Jesus Christ, the ruler who has come, offers us peace and reconciliation with the Father through his perfect blood. He perfectly washed away all of our sin, and he perfectly obeyed the law for us so that we can stand in God's sight, in the sight of the Father, being accepted and made holy and acceptable to God, reconciled through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not your peace, you have no hope whatsoever on that great day of judgment. If you have not done so, ask Jesus Christ to work mightily in you through, his, through the Holy Spirit. Ask God to work His Holy Spirit to give you new life, to believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ as your only peace, your Savior, and your only hope for salvation. Let's pray together. We thank you, our glorious God, that though you have brought your people to grief through trials and tribulations, through being besieged by enemies, you also brought your people hope through the Holy Messiah, even through the ruler from of old, even Jesus Christ, our only source of peace in this life or in the life to come. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us, help us to cast aside all means of worldly peace, but to embrace that perfect holy gospel that can only be our source of true, lasting, eternal peace. Father, work, we pray, through your Holy Spirit and help us to believe and receive these things which are taught in your word. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn in our closing hymns and stand and sing 515, More Than Conquerors. Let's stand and sing 515.